and welcome to another exciting episode of Back to the Bins. I'm your co-host, Scott Gardner, and joining me for today's show is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast. Thank you for joining me, Billy. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. Hey, anytime, anytime. So, uh, what have you brought for us today? The comic book I have today uh, was first published back in 1963. It is Superman issue number 167 the February 1964 issue, uh, which, according to the website dcindexes.com, was published on December 19th of 1963. Uh, the editor of, at this time was Bart Weisinger, and the cover was penciled by Kurt Swan, my favorite Superman and comic book artist in general, and inked by George Klein. And I found out from the book by Eddie Zeno called Kurt Swan, A Life in Comics, that the cover came from an idea by Kerry Bates, which in the book he noted that it was his first idea that was ever published in a comic book. And at the time, DC did not pay for cover ideas, but he felt he got well compensated enough by receiving the original art from the cover, which is one of his prized possessions. Oh wow, that that's quite the quite the deal, especially way back then. Yeah, and especially with you know back in this time, in reading the in the book, Kurt Swan was one of those artists back in the old days where, you know, it's not like today that comic book uh, pages of original art weren't seen as that profitable. So uh, I guess sometimes he would give them away as gifts or whatever. So that's definitely uh, one worth keeping. Well, I'll bet a tidy profit could be turned from that sort of thing today for something that they didn't think much of it back in the day. Yeah, and the writer of the story was uh, Edmund Hamilton, and the same art team for the cover, Kurt Swan and George Klein, did the story. The original cover price was $0.12, cents, but I paid $12 for the issue back in 1993. My family and I were on vacation in Tampa. We took our preschoolers to Bush Gardens and bought that one along with Superman number 181. That one was $4. And uh, that uh, 181 was the story of the Superman of 2965. The story title for this one is The Team of Luthor and Brainiac. And if you, uh, anyone wants to read this story, uh, if you can't find it in the back issue bin of a comic book store or on the Internet, it was reprinted in uh, Superman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, Volume 2, or Superman vs. Brainiac. And I first read the story in a one of those 80-page uh, or 100-page giants that Superman would publish way back you know, in the 60s or 70s when they would have an all-reprint issue. Uh, the story uh, began with Luthor. Uh, smuggling some stuff from the uh, machine shop to MacGyver his way out of prison, which was how a lot of Luthor Silver Age stories began. He returned to his Luthor's lair, which was an astronomical observatory outside Metropolis, where he fired a kryptonite missile at Superman. But after the Man of Steel outsmarted Luthor, he used his invention, the Time-Space Thought Scanner, another example of Silver Age comic book science, to search for someone to help him outsmart Superman. 
And Luthor described the device as able to tune into minds anywhere in the, in the universe in any period of time. Now, who would have thought that thought traveled faster than the speed of light? <laughs> but Luthor is able to home in on an advanced civilization of an alien planet where the people have a green skin. And the, some of the top scientists of that planet have just built a new supercomputer whose intelligence is even greater than their own. And just like typical 1960s computers, these living computers are huge. In fact, in the story, they're about the size of a bulldozer and even have their own set of wheels to get around in. And like any, any normal living computer would do, they take over the world. And in order to extend their wise rule over the foolish humans, as they put it, they create a, an android robot disguised as a, a humanoid. And it turns out that this is none other than Superman's old villain, Brainiac. And to make his cover more convincing, they give him a son who's named Brainiac II. And in an editor's note, uh, the editor mentions that Brainiac 5 is the descendant of the second Brainiac, not the original evil one. And so at the end of part one, Luthor decides to team with Brainiac. And with part two, called The Defeat of Superman, Luthor builds a spaceship, which is shaped like a typical 1950s flying saucer. He flies to the planet Cronus, which is where Superman has imprisoned Brainiac. And Luthor is able to use the safeguards that Superman had installed to protect Brainiac in case of a fire or a natural disaster to enable Brainiac to escape from his prison. And on board his spaceship, Luthor upgrades Brainiac's computer mind to even a more intelligent level. And once he's reactivated, Brainiac decides that he doesn't need Luthor but Luthor had implanted a booby trap in Brainiac as insurance, which is another example of why the Legion of Doom could never defeat the Super Friends. <laughs> Luthor had formulated a serum gas, which would remove Superman's powers, and he used Brainiac's knowledge of the cosmos to find the planets that the individual components could be found. However, none of these could be found on Earth. And so to escape Superman's search, they camouflage Luthor's ship by hiding it inside a hollowed-out lead meteor. And so the story shows Luthor and Brainiac visiting various worlds to gather the ingredients. And one of the planets they stop at is Lexor, the one planet in the galaxy where Lex Luthor is considered a hero. But at Luther's request, they don't steal what they need. Uh, they, there's another planet that they can find whatever unnamed substance it is. And then they return to Brainiac's home planet of Kolu, which was where Brainiac 5 would uh, eventually come from in the 30th century, only to find that the computer tyrants have been overthrown and destroyed, and so Brainiac is the only one left. And so... The story shows Superman hot on the trail, and he finally finds them back at Luthor's lair, where Luthor has already filled the observatory with his serum gas. And Superman finds that he is powerless, and so they defeat Superman, and Brainiac shrinks Superman, 
with his uh, shrinking ray, and that ends part two. And part three is titled, uh, well, it's about Candor's vengeance. I'll just leave it at that. Luther and Brainiac put Superman in a birdcage, and Superman is about the size of a 12-inch action figure. <laughs> and while Luther and Brainiac argue about the best way to kill Superman, Superman takes his uh, Clark Kent clothes, which he has compressed and hidden in a secret pouch of his cape. So now you know what Superman does with his Clark Kent clothes. And he rips them into strips and ties them into a rope from where they've uh, placed the birdcage uh, hanging from the ceiling. And so he is able to climb down to the floor and escape. And so Superman climbs the stairs, which are about as tall as he is, so it's not an easy climb, up to the top of the observatory where he uh, is going to attempt to launch another one of Luthor's missiles. Meanwhile, Brainiac is showing Luthor his device, uh, which is actually a trick which hypnotizes uh, Luthor so that at Brainiac's suggestion, he removes the booby trap he had installed. And when Luthor comes out of the trance, Brainiac just says that he discovered the device wouldn't work and they'll try something else. Well, then they discover Superman has escaped. Just as the Man of Steel finally manages to fire the missile because the handle is uh, bigger than he is, and so Brainiac zaps Superman with a coma ray uh, on a ring on his uh, hand. <laughs> However, the um, uh, on, at the bottle city of Candor, where they have uh, people who monitor work a monitor room, they see this uh, missile launch, and they send the Superman emergency squad out. They are a group of Candorians that, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, Silver Age Superman stories, they're a group of uh, Candorian volunteers who are able to be enlarged just enough that they can assist Superman in an emergency when uh, Superman's robots uh, would, wouldn't do. And so they rescue Superman and capture Luthor and Brainiac. They shrink them down to size, literally, and take them to the bottle city of Candor, where they put him on trial for the uh, crimes of uh, kidnapping and reducing Candor uh, into uh, the size fit in a, in a bottle. Even though Luther is Brainiac's defense lawyer, Brainiac is convicted and sentenced to eternity in the Phantom Zone. However, Brainiac reminds the court that he is uh, the only one who can bring Superman out of the coma that he put him in with the uh, coma ray. And so, unlike what we can do in this country, the bottle seat of Candor holds an immediate referendum, and in a unanimous vote, the people of Candor agree to forego their revenge on Brainiac and agree to let him go if he saves Superman. So Brainiac uh, honors the bargain, and of course Superman says that he wasn't worth postponing their revenge on Brainiac. But Which is kind of what I was, I'm sorry to interrupt you, that I was kind of thinking the same thing. That's 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 very noble of what I presume to be tens of thousands of people living in that city 
to all of them agree to to let go of their their you know hurt feelings or whatever for one guy that that is pretty remarkable when you think about it yeah i guess they really must respect superman or or something however uh superman being the man of his word allows brainiac and luthor to leave Earth, and so he takes both of them to Luthor's lair, where they leave on uh, Luthor's um, spaceship. And Brainiac takes the spaceship and drops Luthor off back at the planet Lexor. And in an editor's note, refers back to uh, Superman number 164 for a previous story about Luthor and uh, the planet Lexor. Now, um, Superman would eventually enlarge the bottle city of Kandor. I think it's uh, Superman, um, was it in the 300s? It's like three, I want to say it's like either 336 or 363, something like that. I should know that number because I have it in, a, in an automated eBay search right now. I'm desperate to get that issue, <laughs> but I'm trying to find it on the cheap. I've actually never read that story, and I'm very anxious to. Yeah, I, I have, I do have that. Uh, it is a pretty neat story. And one of the th- things I like about this story is that it shows that, uh, you know, superpowered or not, you know, Superman's going to shows his tenacity. He's going to do whatever it takes to uh, defeat the villain. Of course, one thing about this uh, story is typical of the era in the Silver Age. That, that it has plot points or devices that are dropped into the story out of the blue and never explained, such as, you know, the serum Luther comes up with. You know, if none of the components could be found on Earth, how would Luther know that uh, <laughs> that these things exist and they can be made into a, uh, combined into this formula? Now, maybe he must have used his time-space thought scanner or something. I don't know. Another thing is... Um, in Luther's lair, he has a room of his of statues of his heroes like Genghis Khan and Al Capone and, you know, historical figures of villainy. And he also has a reminder room, which is nothing but calendar pages, which have been crossed off showing the number of years he's lost of his life in prison because of Superman. <laughs> and for someone... To be that obsessed, you would think those are the kind of people you would expect to find dead bodies buried in their backyard or in a freezer or something like that. <laughs> and in the scenes where it shows Luther and Brainiac gathering these ingredients in various worlds, it's fun to see these weird, you know, Silver Age aliens. Like one planet, it, there's these weird robot crab-like creatures, and another is a world that has no land is completely covered in water and the uh, creatures that live on this world have evolved into living ships uh, complete with exhaust ports in the rear (laughs) so you know i couldn't help but think you know apparently on this world flatulence has become a renewable energy source (laughs) but another thing i like about the story you know silver age quirky bits aside in a way, it was kind of ahead of its time, and it's kind of a bittersweet story. You know, yes, Superman survives, but in a way, he doesn't. Like in comic books today, you know, sometimes a hero doesn't win, and that's certainly the case with Superman. In fact, he's honor bound to let his two biggest villains go free, and 
in that respect, this, to me, the story does kind of hold up in time where a lot of celebrate stories that even I enjoy, you know, they don't always hold up like that when you read them today. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'll agree with that. And that's about it for uh, Superman 167. I just had to start with that one because that's about my favorite Superman story I've ever read. Oh, wow. Now, would this be the first team-up between Brainiac and Luthor? I can't say absolutely that it is. I'm not aware of any any time, any other story before that where they did team up. So I'm looking at the cover to this one, and it says, There's never been a menace like this. Brainiac and Luthor team up to destroy Superman. So I'm kind of thinking that maybe it is. And what's funny to me is... Uh, it's actually kind of scary to me, really. I guess maybe this is a sign of of age or a sign of having read just too many damn comic books, but not only do I own this issue, a, a coverless copy of this issue, and a copy of uh, the greatest Superman stories ever told, but up until you got to the part with the missile launch and the little Superman rescue squad going out and stopping it, I did not remember a thing about this story. That's kind of frightening to me that, wow, you know, I know I must have read it at least twice and remembered absolutely nothing about it. So that's shame for shame. <laughs> oh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention real quick. On the letter page, the Metropolis mailbag, uh, they have a thing about why they turn Brainiac, they reveal Brainiac to be a robot instead of just an alien from another world. And that's because apparently there was a some company that had one of these little electronic kits you could order, and they had trademarked the term Brainiac. Oh. But I guess they uh, made an agreement with DC Comics. Now, they didn't, um, in the letter page, the editor doesn't say if they had sued them or just said, hey, you know, we happen to own the trademark to Brainiac, but we don't want to be a hard case about it, but we'd like to work something out. And so they decided to make Brainiac a robot. So that's all I wanted to mention about that. <laughs> because, now, it seems uh, to me that that name had been tossed around, though, even before, you know, the Superman villain of that name, because I'm almost positive that back, I'm talking way, way back, probably turn of the century or even before, you know, like there, there would be the traveling carnivals and things like that. And they would have people that would proclaim that they could read the future or that they were super intelligent or what, you know, as carnival acts. Yeah. Called Brainiac. And, and I think there might've even been a pulp character of some kind. I don't huh. know. So it's, it's kind of odd. It, it kind of makes you wonder if DC ever bothered back in those days to even check to see if someone was using a name or if they just ran with it when they thought up a great one. Yeah, I, I guess that might be the case because uh, they certainly ran after people that they thought were copying an idea of theirs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes ran them out of business. <laughs> I wonder how long do you think that same story that you reviewed would be in today's comics. I mean, that would be a multi-part story. You know, I could yeah. see that being spread over several issues. Oh yeah. Yeah. They, uh, you know, listening to different podcasts, they talk about the same thing, how, you know, these silver age stories, they just drop this plot point and then they just drop it in there and they run to something else. And it's like, you know, today they would just 
elaborate on it. It would just that one point would probably take up a whole issue. <laughs> yeah, they they definitely like that uh, that what do they call it decompressed writing style, which. You know, I, I'm not sure which side I fall on. I don't care for the decompressed to the point where, you know, something like Secret Invasion that happens in a single day is spread over, what was that, six or eight issues. However, you know, going to the other extreme where, you know, one comic takes you, you know, an hour to read and it's got so much exposition and all that it, that it almost loses you because you get, a, you, you feel like there's just overload. So, yeah, I'm not sure where the, where the happy medium is in that. But I could see that same issue that you reviewed. I could actually see that spun into at least two parts, maybe even three parts. You know, like maybe yeah. the, the, the chapters of the book as you define them, I could actually see them being three separate issues rather than three separate chapters of, of one, you know, very meaty story in one book. Yeah, that's the thing about, you know, these older issues I've noticed, um, like I collect some of the showcase presents of like Superman and the Legion of Superheroes and the Superman family, and most it w- was an uncommon thing to have one story take up a whole issue. Right. You know, DC Comics, you would have like, uh, depending on how far back you go, like maybe three stories, completely different stories, in, in one issue, and it was kind of an exception to the rule to have one story fill up the whole issue right i like the uh the original silver age stuff I, you know even some of the goofier elements and all I, I i chalk it up to they were trying new things and they were trying to be imaginative and they were really trying to thrill kids and keep kids coming back however i i'm very much in the camp of keep the silver age in the silver age i'm not so crazy about the new you know the the latest thing in comics which is bringing you know, the Silver Age and all its silly trappings back and in, injecting it into modern comics. Yeah, I can see that. I have to say, I, I am enjoying how Jeff Johns has been they've been doing that in Superman, you know, with Candor and uh, how he uh, kind of uh, brought all the versions of Brainiac together. But, you know, for the most part, I have to agree with you, the you know, Silver Age is best you know, left to kind of look back on but I have to say, just for myself, I am enjoying what they're doing in Superman. Well, I'm going to jump into my book now. Well, this one is, for this one, we're going to October 1987. So not horribly long ago, but probably older than some of our listeners still, which makes me feel very old. <laughs> me too. <laughs> this is Suicide Squad number six, written by John Ostrander with art by Luke McDonald and Bob Lewis, who both uh, provide the great cover on this one. This cover depicts Deadshot, and we're, we're kind of looking at Deadshot as he's taking aim with a very nasty-looking weapon that has a scope mounted to the top of it, and we see reflected in the scope that he is targeted dead center on the Enchantress's face. So just an exciting cover, the kind of cover that makes you go, whoa, whoa, what's, what's going on here? Aren't they teammates? So flipping to the first page, it's a beautiful title, splash page, and we see uh, Rick Flagg, the, the commander of the mission, and Deadshot. They're both dressed as, as Russian soldiers, and uh, also with them is the Penguin, who is dressed kind of like, a, I guess he's supposed to be like a monk or something, but it, it's just a hilarious look for him. You know, he's not dressed in his typical 
top hat and tails. He, he's dressed, you know, very much like uh, like Friar Tuck or something, and he's got a little goatee and a mustache. It's it's a really hilarious look for the penguin, but he, he looks neat too. And this is a story called Hitting the Fan, and it is doing so immediately. Oh, by the way, this issue was originally 75 cents, and God, I wish they were still that cheap today. <laughs> so immediately uh, we see why this title is, or why this book is titled Hitting the Fan, because it is hitting the fan. The trio is looking at a Russian, it's like a house or barracks or something, and it's blowing up. It's just exploding all over the place. And the penguin comments on, you know, that, that the plan was for stealth. What's going on? You know, what was that explosion? And Rick, Rick Flagg says, you know, everything's hitting the fan. And something's gone wrong. They don't know what exactly. One of Nightshade's portals open up, and she and uh, Tommy Tresser, that's it, Tom Tresser, he is uh, the nemesis. But he's, he, right here he's just dressed like a normal guy. He's got like a, like a business suit type of thing on. And this Russian woman that they have freed, they come through one of Nightshade's portals, and Nightshade reports that something's wrong, that uh, June Moon turned into the Enchantress as per the mission, but then the Enchantress just flipped out, and she's doing whatever she wants. She's completely out of control. June Moon has lost the ability to control the, the Enchantress by this point. She's, she's turned into her just one too many times. So to try to save the mission and save themselves... Uh, Rick Flag orders Deadshot to first bring down the Enchantress, but not to kill her. And at first, Deadshot's like, you know, well, what if I miss? He he looks like he's pretty intent to just blow her away. At which point, Flag holds a gun to his head and says, you know, don't miss because I won't. So Deadshot shoots the Enchantress, and there's a beautiful panel of him just like it, it really looks like he just shot her in the face, and she falls out of the sky into a snowbank, and Nightshade and Tommy Tresser go and check on the Enchantress, and she's just been winged. You know, he just like clipped her in the skull, basically enough to to stun her and knock her out of the sky. And they rescue her. Nemesis forces her to change back to June Moon, which she does. And June's flipping out. You know, what's wrong? What did she do? She's kind of like the Hulk in that aspect. She doesn't retain a memory of what the Enchantress does when she's turned into her. She just knows that her control over her is slipping. And so they're trying to figure out what are they going to do? How are they get away, going to get away? You know, the, the Russian uh, soldiers have been attracted by this giant explosion and they're on their way. Well, they decide to create a diversion and flag wants uh Deadshot, you know, to attract their attention. Well, Deadshot being kind of the, the smart aleck that he is, he decides the best way to attract their attention. He just shoots the commanding officer right dead in the face. So it's a great shot of these guys, you know, these Russian soldiers just kind of standing around. And then the next thing you see the commander, you know, who's standing in the middle of all these guys, his head just kind of pops because he gets shot by uh, by Deadshot. Flag kind of freaks out. He's like, you know, that's not what I meant. So now they're on the run and they figure out basically a way to use Nightshade's power to teleport around the troops who are now rushing at the last position that they were at. And they steal one of the Russian trucks and they drive off in it. And pretty quickly the Russians realize what is going on and they all come racing after the uh, the suicide squad. Deadshot checks around and finds this very cool, very futuristic looking bazooka style weapon and he's just having a blast, literally taking out all the pursuing forces with this just 
giant looking, almost like ray gun type of thing. It's it's pretty neat. The art in this really took a step up. I'm not the biggest Luke McDonald fan. I think he's a very serviceable artist, and I, I like that he can draw in a very realistic style. He really captures a lot of body movement and a lot of, it's almost like snapshots of things that people would actually do. Um, it's hard to describe. He's very good at that, but it, at the same rate, it's like he has he doesn't quite have the chops to pull off what he's trying to portray sometimes. So it, it's kind of odd in that sense, you know, that he's got such a wonderful eye for real, realistic body language, but isn't quite refined enough to always pull it off successfully. But this particular issue is, is one of the better ones so far in the series, uh, uh, you know, as far as the uh, Luke McDonald art. The team is able to fight their way all the way to the train station. They're, they're trying to, basically the, the, re- the mission has been to rescue this, uh, this Russian woman that for some reason the, the team was sent in to, to basically pull her out. And she's kind of freaking out because she never asked to be rescued. She doesn't want to be rescued. And she feels that by being pulled out of the country and everything and basically rescued and brought to the West is, is undoing everything that she was trying to do as basically a dissident within her own country. And, and it, it, Works. She feels it's going to work against her, basically, and she's not going to go down as quite the martyr that she wanted to. So anyway, they finally make it to the train station, and they're all gathered together, and they're trying to figure out how are they going to get everyone out. They've only got papers for so many of the team. So what they decide to do is Nightshade can teleport into any place that she's actually laid eyes on. So they they do some checking around and they find an empty box car in the train. So now she's seen it and she's got it locked in the rest of the team that does have papers. They go ahead and board the train. So that basically leaves behind nemesis and nightshade nightshade is teleported so many times by this point that, that she's really not in a good state. She's, she's exhausted and barely able to use her powers and the train takes off and it looks like it's going to leave them behind but Nemesis keeps pushing and pushing until she's finally able to open her portal just enough that they can teleport onto the train, and then that's it. She's spent. She can't do anymore. And there's a nice little moment where they realize that they've got quite the ordeal ahead of them because they're in kind of like a cargo compartment in the train. There's no heat or anything, and here they are in the middle of you know the worst winter in a number of years in Russia, and they're freezing to death. So Nemesis offers basically to you know snuggle with her and keep her warm. And I like the moment where he offers this and then he says, you know, just for warmth, you understand, you know, after all, I'm not flag. And she's kind of stunned by this. And she says, are you, you've noticed, meaning, you know, that he's noticed that she has feelings for him. And Nemesis says, well, you know, how you feel about him? Well, yeah, I've, I've noticed I'm not blind. And she says, well, he hasn't noticed. Nemesis just says that, well, that's because flag's an idiot. <laughs> and she says, you know, you're, you know, you don't like him, you know, you don't mind that, you know, I'm in love with him and not with you. And he says, well, yeah, you know, I'm I'm jealous, but it's your heart. And, you know, he's decided to stand by her, even though he would really like to have her, he's going to respect her feelings and everything. And I just thought that was a really good moment between the two of them. I don't know that anything ever comes of it beyond that, but this seemed like kind of a human moment between the two of them. And I really like that. So 
quite a while later, we see the uh, the team has finally arrived at their destination. They've been able to pass through all the security checks and everything else. You know, their papers have checked out. However, Nemesis and Nightshade are extremely overdue by this point, and they're very worried, and they're they're afraid that if they don't show up soon, they're going to have to leave them behind. And Deadshot, you know, has a very callous comment about the fact that, you know, they had to have frozen to death. You know, they're dead by this point, and it's foolish for us to keep standing around waiting to get caught. You know, we have to move along and, and forget about them. And the Penguin agrees, and it looks like they're just about to leave when Nightshade and Nemesis come through one of her portals and she's just not looking good at all. She's shaky, and, and her her words and her word balloons are, are very, you know, written in a very shaky style. They're very tiny. So you get the feeling that she's just utterly spent and exhausted and, and on the verge of collapse. Yet, Flag pushes her for one last port. You know, she's got to get them all out of there. They're so close. Can she do it one last time? And she's trying when we cut to the American Embassy and... Bronze Tiger has stayed behind at the embassy, and we see him talking to this guy. We don't know exactly who he is. When the team ports through, they've made it, you know, at the expense of uh, of Nightshade's health. She's just a wreck by this point. But everybody's relieved to finally be back. You know, they're they're half frozen, and, you know, they've been through quite the ordeal. When Bronze Tiger introduces them to the guy that was standing there with him, and the guy immediately goes off on Rick Flagg and the entire team. Turns out that he is the undersecretary to the American ambassador at this uh, this embassy. This is the U.S. embassy on Russian soil, and the guy basically is blaming them. They've created an international incident, and you know the basically the American government is going to disavow them and disown them. And they had better turn themselves over, and they've got 30 minutes to decide what they're going to do. And we're left with the team just all kind of standing around looking at each other, thinking, what What did we do this for? What? What's going on, and what are we going to do about it? And great last panel with uh, Deadshot, who's always just the cocky, smart aleck of the group, you know, asking Flag at this point, well, what do you want to do about this? And it was... I just thought it was really good. I remember when this title came out and this was back, you know, in, in 87, right after the crisis on infinite earths. And I think I was buying or trying every DC book on the, on the stands at that point, because so many of them were new or they had been rebooted or, or refurbished. And they were just, you know, it was a whole new day for DC. And I remember getting this title, at least the first several issues and for some reason, I don't know why, it didn't make much of an impact on me at the time, and I dropped it within just a few issues. And I don't know if it was due to the art, which, like I say, I'm just not that big of a Luke McDonald fan. So I don't know if it was story or art, or it didn't grab me enough, or maybe I was overextended on the number of books I was getting at the time, or what it was. But why I didn't keep going with a, with an issue this good, I, I really don't know. I don't even know if I if I made it as far as this issue. But I read this one and I was just like, wow, um, I, I'm slowly making my way through the series now because I'm a big fan of the current um, Secret Six books that, uh, that's coming out from DC. So I wanted to kind of go back to the roots of that team, especially with Deadshot, who's one of the characters in Secret Six that I really enjoy, and go back and read this original series that I've heard so much about over the years, and I've collected just about the entire series in back issue, but really had never gotten around to reading them. Well, now I am, and 
you know, the, the first couple issues were really good. And then there was kind of a weak story with, uh, with the female furies from apocalypse that I thought was kind of, eh, but then I get to this story with, uh, with them going to Russia and just how the whole mission just completely fell apart and I'm hooked. I, th- I think it's excellent. I thought it was really good. H- have you read this series at all? I've read a few issues. I think I have one issue. I think I don't remember which one it was, but it's back at the same time. Uh, I think it's Amanda had Amanda Waller. Uh, she's a member of the team, and I think it had Batman on the cover. Oh yeah, uh-huh. where they have kind but, of a confrontation of of sorts in the yeah issue. some kind. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time since I've read it. Yeah, and, me too. <laughs> th- that's the only only one I've really read. Uh, of course, I've you know seen them pop up in different DC stories, but I have to agree with you. That was. Uh, the time when I was really start first starting to get in back into comics, the late 80s, early 90s, I was really just becoming a collector you know, of regular issues for the first time. Because uh, growing up in the 70s, you know, there weren't that many comic book stores like we know of now. So there was quite a few DC titles that I, you know, I, I would try. I really like John Ostrander. Uh, and now I'm determined I'm going to hunt down more of his stuff and read it. Because anything I ever read of his, I always really enjoyed. I always thought he brought a really nice real-world feel to whatever he would write. I, I'm kind of ashamed I haven't actually read more of his stuff for him being you know, like that. Somebody that's on my radar that I, I know that I like, yet haven't read more of him. So I'm, I'm going to make an effort. And uh, so far, like I said, I'm really digging this series, and uh, and I hope it just gets better from here because I I thought it was really uh, this was the issue I thought were okay now now we're on a roll you know we've kind of got past the preliminary stuff now now it seems like it's kicking into high gear. Big thanks to Billy Hogan for joining me on this episode, and be sure to check out his excellent show, the Superman Fan Podcast, at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com. Also, be sure to check out Billy's blogs at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com and also mypolllist.blogspot.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of thecomicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show, so if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and I'll see you next week.